Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. It was it it is likely to be as exciting as the first hour. How's that? Right. Yeah. It, it, that doesn't say that the first hour was that exciting, but that's how exciting we should expect it to be. Right. Right. Precisely. <clears throat> Past yes. performance is no guarantee of future returns. Shares when bought may be higher or lower, higher or lower in price when sold. But they are almost always older. Right. Yes. Um, almost. Almost. I mean, futures contract, you start talking about that, it gets weird. It's, if they're not born yet, can they have an age? That's, that's all I'm saying. It's, it's, I mean, you could buy your grandfather before he was born and mess up the entire existence of humanity if you get into futures. No, that's pasts. Sorry, got them all backwards. Go ahead. Right. So let's talk about disclosures. Yes. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach. Uh, it is not just a radio program or a podcast. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. We have to tell you that because the SEC wants us to. Mm -hmm. um, we just because we're registered with the SEC as a firm doesn't mean that the SEC likes us in any way. There's no implication of liking. That's a government agency and they don't do that. So there's no approval or liking, even if we seek it. Approval seeking doesn't really work with the SEC. Okay, so that's out of the way. Second is that I just said that we were registered in, in, in doing business uh, as fiduciaries giving investment advice and we're on the radio and we can't do fiduciary investment advice on the radio because it means we would have to know all of you and we would have to have some form of private channel of communication to each of you that none of the others could hear while we were doing this. Sounds like telepathy to me. Do you think we could do that? I think it is theoretically possible, but improbable. Improbable at this point. Okay, so that being said, we can't give you direct investment advice on the air. Instead, we're going to be giving educational information. We're hopefully going to fill your brain with knowledge, or at least try. I can give some investment advice. Go ahead. Buy low, sell high. If you buy an investment that you want to go up and it doesn't go up, don't buy it in the first place. Yes. If it does go up, sell it. If it goes higher, go buy a beer. A beer? After you sell it and it goes up anyway. What makes you why what if I don't want a beer? Well, you stimulate the economy when you buy the beer. You can just keep the can on the shelf or something. Aha. I suppose that is reasonable. Okay. Right. So that being said, the next disclosure after beer buying would be, you want to you want to deem to tell us what the next one is? Well, the information we present on this educational radio program, since we're not giving advice, it's educational, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And especially make no guarantee or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of unsaid information. Actually, I can make a guarantee. Anything that's unsaid is incomplete. Unless its completeness was its lack of saying. Uh, we could go on like that all day. Yeah, we could. This, this is a very deep philosophical conversation, but instead we're going to move on to the next disclosure. Which is... Which is... We don't that, pay, you got it. You go ahead. Yes. You do it. We don't pay for this 
radio program, nor are we paid to do the radio program. However, we do pay for advertisement for the radio program, as does the studio. So there's a partnership in promoting this, but we're not paid to do it, nor do we pay to do it. And that is the last of our disclosures, I believe. One of the things I want to talk about a little bit, and we've said this before, and it's as usual, we were too early, but it's reality. Bond, um, bonds are have a inherent danger in them now. They have had for some time. We've been talking about it for years, but it's coming home to roost. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If you, and, and I'm going to use a, a mutual fund from a company that's really a good company, uh, Vanguard. And I'm certainly not recommending you buy or sell any particular mutual fund, but it's a good way. It's really hard to find an index for bonds. However, Vanguard, fortunately, has a total bond market ETF. They have a total bond market index fund with very, very low cost. And kind of watching that, uh, it gives you an example of what bonds have been doing historically. Uh, it's probably as good a place to go as anyway. The three-year return, if you invested all your interest in at the at, at that ETF is 1.09% per year. And if you haven't been tracking it, inflation is a little higher than that. The one-year return is a negative 6.79% year to date. It's down 7.9%. It takes people a while to figure out this, but there's a reality out there, folks. A, a fundamental, by the way, this is a gold-rated fund by Morningstar. So we're talking about. We're not talking about some weird, crazy. We're not. Nothing that we're not recommending that you buy anything. Just very, so, very clearly there. Uh, so, if it's done that poorly, what's going on? What's going on? Our interest rates are going up. As interest rates rise, the value of the existing bonds in a portfolio fall. That is one of those immutable rules that very few people understand. I've met stockbrokers who don't understand it, uh, and so. It's important to recognize that at this point, holding bonds for the long term means you really need to have a lot of patience and be willing to see when the bond matures, probably getting, although you get all the dollars back, if you buy a bond for $1,000 and it's got a guarantee on it or it's a very solid bond, there's a high probability you'll get your $1,000 back when it matures. However, the $1,000 just won't buy very much. And along the way, if you needed to liquidate it, or your heirs needed to liquidate it, you might be kind of disappointed. Uh, you might be severely disappointed, as a matter of fact. Which is, why, why is that key? Well, first off, a lot of people are scared and there's still positive flow into long-term bonds, which astonishes me at this point. But the other side of that is, we talked about the 60-40 portfolio. That's kind of the rule of thumb if you read a book on investing or something, that's 60% of your money in stocks and 40% in bonds. When the 40% side, which is considered the safe conservative side that's supposed to protect you on in down markets and so on, is down, let's say, 8% year to date, which is a very common number. Uh, and the stock market is down roughly 5% year to date. You not only did not get protection from the bonds, the bonds made your, your portfolio perform worse than had you um, been all in stocks, which I don't recommend either. This is one of the realities that has hit us as investors that I think is really important to pay attention to. There are other ways to cushion the downside on a portfolio. 
um, other than buying bonds and stocks. We we kind of fell into this mixture of stocks and bonds as being prudent and appropriate because we've had 40 years of bond bull market. And if you've been listening to us for any length of time, we've been talking about the fact for a couple of years now that the bond bull market is coming to an end. It is already ended. It's over with. We're now in a bond bear, a long-term bond bear market. I said last hour, and I and, and it's, I believe, very true. Higher interest rates are arriving. They're going to be higher in the future than they are today. I can say with a great deal of confidence, there's no certainty about the future. And they're going to stay high. That means that the bonds you bought when interest rates are low, were low, are going to be worth less than you paid for them for a long time. That's just an underlying unpleasant reality that uh, is, is already hurting some people and it's going to hurt other people. Uh, and it, it, there's no simple answer to how do you get around that. There are answers, but they apply to individuals more than they do to the general public. So that's one of those things where we'd be giving investment advice and we don't. Right. Uh, that's an important thing to realize that's going on out there. Uh, yeah. You, you, before I roll over into the general economy, you want to talk about stuff? Yeah. Uh, mortgage rates. Uh, Freddie Mac just came out and said 4.72% is the average 30-year loan. What does that mean? Um, there have been some articles about this. If you've got a $350,000 mortgage and you get it at 3.5% and you have a, a interest rate change, so you're, let's compare two different mortgages. Here we go. The payment on the mortgage would be roughly just below the $3,000 mark um, with, with no down payment. So the mortgage itself is the totality of, we're not talking about insurance. We're not talking about taxes on top. So $350,000 of debt at three and a half percent, you can afford $80,000 less house at a 5% mortgage for the same payment. So as interest rates are going up here, it's going to make it harder for people to afford to buy homes. And that's already an issue in that people are having trouble uh, affording homes. There's a great article on this, the Wall Street Journal has on this. But uh, if we look back into the 2020 area, um, home affordability, and this is measured by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, home affordability and whether or not someone is willing to purchase because of affordability issues, they break it down into segments. And what their income is, what the interest rate is, and what the price is. So why is that important? Well, if the price is there and, and you're making a payment on it, the price is less important than what your payment is. Most people don't go to a house thinking, I can afford a $500,000 house. They say, I can afford a certain amount per month. As long as interest rates are low, the, the sticker price on the house uh, has a lot of flexibility because you can move up the, the price a bit and still be able to afford it. As interest rates have been going up, the, pr the interest rate factor is a negative now where for the past three or four years, it's been an intense positive causing people to want to buy a home. The interest rate right now is hitting negatively in people's decision-making to buy a house. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it has a downward pressure on house prices, the appreciation. And it just means, it doesn't mean it makes it go down, but if it's growing really fast, it'll grow slower. 
And if it's growing slow, it might shrink. And, and that's the kind of bottom line here. We don't have enough houses to grow, go around yet. However, housing starts are way, way up. Builders are building at high rates of speed. That causes more houses to come onto the market, which has another downward pressure on prices. Until we meet that backlog, that extra need, and let me kind of give a demographic reasoning. A lot of people will remember this because we talked about it and we joked about it um, over the last decade. The whole thing about millennials not wanting to buy their own house and, uh, and me coming back with, with eventually they're going to want to move out of the house. This is not something, they, they were burned and scared by the Great Recession. Houses dried up and lost their value. They went underwater. They dried up and went underwater. How's that for mixed metaphor? Uh, there's, so you have this dried up house underwater. You owe more on it than what you can sell it for. I said more on there, didn't I? Sorry. Yes, you did. Uh, that with a dried up underwater. Yes, you owe more on. Oh, no, that's, that's not how I meant it. But it, it came out that way. Uh, so you owe more than it's worth. And so a lot of people of a younger generation during that period did not want that burn. But over the last two years, all that pent-up demand in that generation, now they're starting to have kids, their family's getting big, and there's only so long you can live with mom and dad. So the housing market has been booming. We stopped making houses after the Great Recession, uh, not full stop, but pretty close. It was pretty close to cold turkey because there were so many houses already out there and they were all dirt cheap. So a lot of the builders stopped building after going bankrupt come forward to today and we have fewer houses on the market we're seeing the other side of that though builders are building at full speed and maybe faster there are huge numbers of houses being built right now and at some point that is going to catch up with the demand and we'll see the other side of the housing market i don't see that happening this year i do see houses not appreciating anywhere near the speed that they have Year over year, they're up 20%, according to the, the Federal Reserve. So house appreciation across the country is up 20%. Well, that's not sustainable because income is not going up at 20%. So you, and if, if interest rates are going up and income is not, and housing prices are going up, there's a limit at some point to what people can afford. So we're not at the peak yet, but we're getting there. We're very close. And as interest rates go up, it's going to have a higher and higher statement as to when the peak is. Interest rates are going to be a big portion of when the housing market hits the top. Uh, it may have to hit a top and stay plateaued for a little bit as the houses get built up to, to give new families new houses. Anyway, that's, that is my, my long look at this is that um, across the country, we're getting close to the peak. Now, Central Texas, I'm going to come around and say the opposite. Williamson County, which is just north of Travis County, Travis County's Austin. Austin is growing really big. Williamson County was the fastest growing county in the nation in 2021 when you measure by relative size. They had 70,000 new residents into Williamson County last year. They didn't make 
30,000 new houses in Williamson County last year. Not even close. Uh, we're talking maybe tens of thousands, uh, 10,000 new houses. And I can, it's much harder to look up per county how many houses are built. But that means that it's not keeping up with demand. Demand is coming faster. There's a limit to that too. When people are moving to the Austin area, if the prices are too high, what they've done until recently is move north or move south or move west or move east of Austin. Well, eventually you run out of places that you can live and still commute to Austin. So now you're just servicing the people that commute to Austin. And as they move farther and farther north, it's causing the distance to be great enough that it takes too long to go down and help these people out and get paid for it. So there's a limit there too. Growing up along I-35, it's probably going to be a while before the market peaks. Expect prices to continue to rise stupidly fast for the next year or so, at least in Central Texas, as, as long as you're on the I-35 corridor. Go east of it, and you'll see the opposite. Holland, Texas is not experiencing the same kind of boom that Salado, Texas is. But it's likely to. Why? Let me explain. Taylor is getting a big Samsung plant. Right. Temple is getting a meta center, meta computing center. This, These is, will the, all this is the company that was Facebook. It's kind of like formerly Purple Rain or whatever, right? Um, no, no, it's formerly known as Prince. That's one of his songs. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the point is that the major employment generators that were in Austin have reached saturation, and those employment generators are now looking east and north in Texas for places where there are enough people who want to work that they can maybe fill it in and maybe people can afford to live there. The boom is definitely on the way here. And it is part, this is something to do with what John uh, asked about in the last hour. Our chip manufacturing and our electronics manufacturing for the United States has mainly been outside of the United States over the last couple of decades, three decades. It's coming back and it's coming back like gangbusters. Um, is it going to generate the level of job creation? that an automobile manufacturing plant used to create when it came into a town for those old folks who remember that kind of thing. No, a lot of this is automated and they're going to need to have workers. And this is the interesting point. And this is another major change that's going on in society right now. If I could wax eloquent on this for just a moment, please wax, wax away. There is kind of a standard of measurement and because of the standard of measurement, everybody assumes that this is true for everybody. And that is that, People with college educations, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, make more money than people who don't have college educations. Beneath the surface, there is a change going on. The important thing at this point in getting hired, and the Wall Street Journal has a good article on this, the important thing in getting a good career and getting hired is to be able to do something that an employer wants and do it well. The technicians that will be working at the Samsung plant and that will be working at Meta may or may not have college educations, and frankly, the company won't care. What they will want to know is do the people who work there have the education and or, and or the experience that will enable them to do the jobs that need to be done? Now, why is that a big thing? Obviously, I'm, I, I think, very frankly, a liberal arts education is very important. Uh, a bachelor's degree 
Why? Because it supposedly teaches people to think. I don't think it's done as good a job of that recently as it has in the past because they've become kind of automated and the objective is to get a high graduation rate, I think, more than it is to teach people to think. But the people who come out of higher education with degrees in many cases are saddled for a very long time with crippling financial debt, crippling student loan debt. So their net income is not as high as it appears to be because they've got to be paying on that huge debt. It's critical at this point, probably more so than it has been in my lifetime, that if somebody gets a post-high school education, which is critical to get, that whatever education they get is focused on where the economy is headed, the the point where there is a need for employees. Let me Take this one step further. Another good article in the Wall Street Journal uh, about the new gold, which is wheat, in the United States. I mentioned that in passing last hour. It's an interesting fact that wheat farmers are about to hit a huge windfall because the price of wheat has gone up very fast because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're going to make a lot of money. However, the communities that have wheat farms will probably not benefit. They will probably continue to shrink and continue to see more poverty. Why? Because the wheat farm that used to employ a lot of people now has sometimes millions of dollars worth of computerized equipment and a very limited number of people operating that equipment. The people who know how to operate computerized farm equipment are in high demand. The people in the small towns who don't have that knowledge are not in demand. The world is changing. It's changing fairly quickly. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people have gone to college without a focus on getting an education that will result in their being able to make a good living. They just go to college to go to college. And that era is quickly fading into the past, particularly if they have to borrow money to do it. On the other hand, there's a huge demand coming down the road for people with the technical skills to operate the machinery that is increasingly being found in the places where good job security is to be found, good jobs are to be found. This is, this point in time is probably going to be seen historically as the third industrial revolution. If you can even call it industrial, I mean, it's industrial, it's robotic um, industrial, it's automation industrial, but it's still industrial. Well, the first one was in the, in the 19th century, and Charles Dickens is all about that, when they went from cottage, where people on hand looms made cloth, to factories where cloth was being made and things like that were being made. And a lot of people suddenly found themselves out of work and in poverty, and other people found themselves quite wealthy. It happened again early in the 20th century, uh, where the farm workers disappeared, and the, a lot of people had to move from the south to the north to get jobs in mechanical factories. That was another form of industry. This is Detroit and Chicago's heyday, mm-hmm. the, the Motown area where people are coming together to use these big, this big equipment, but it's mostly people standing in a line doing things with tools in their hands. And you mentioned Holland here in Central Texas and, and a lot of little towns in the area. If you go look at those, their heyday was just before that. The cotton boom. Right. And... When that industrial revolution hit, it changed the demographic of the United States. It changed where people lived, how they functioned. was a major change. We're going through a third one, the third industrial revolution in the history of the United States. Industry 
we think of as big mechanical stuff, but it's also technical stuff. And we mentioned last week, and we mentioned again and again and again, United States companies increase their spending on productivity-enhancing long-term capital items by 7.4% last year. That is a lot. And they're continuing to invest because they got burned with not enough employees. And they are going to continue to surge forward in that area. We've been talking about automated home building for a long time. It's coming, folks. We've been talking about a lot of things uh, that are coming. And there's going to be a high demand for the people with the skills to do those things and a no demand for a lot of other, for unskilled workers at some point down the road. Although we've got a demand for unskilled workers that we're not able to fill right now, which I think is interesting. Because we're not able to fill it, I think we'll probably see more and more machines. And reason we're unable to fill demand for not, for low-skilled workers right now, and this is not political, this is just reality. Over the last five years or so, immigration has fallen dramatically. And that was an intentional federal uh, policy to discourage immigration compounded by COVID. As a result, for example, nursing homes that are seeing a booming business with people coming in there that need to stay for long-term care are universally saying they can't find enough low-skilled workers to work in the nursing homes. No, uh, number one, it became, it became high risk to work in a nursing home, even if you're just cleaning things up right. because that was a center of infection for a while. But you put on that that everybody's looking for low-skilled workers because we're upgrading the low-skilled workers to high-skilled workers and we still have low-skilled needs. I'm going to say something. It isn't left or right political. It's just reality political. We need to reform our immigration laws to allow people, more people to come into the United States to work in low-skilled jobs, raise families here, put their kids through school so the second generation has the higher-skilled jobs. We need more workers in the United States. Either that and, and one of the, the or we need to have more babies. But we're not likely to have more babies. Yeah, it's really hard to convince people to have babies when they don't want to have babies. I've met people who have these two conflicting opinions about what we ought to do. We ought to restrict immigration, but we should bring manufacturing back to the United States. The problem with bringing manufacturing back to the United States is we don't have enough people to do the manufacturing. We don't have enough workers who can go in and work on an assembly line. Um, so we're spending a lot of money on automation, but we're, we're reaching the end of that. And this, this Tesla is often touted, oh, say that 10 times fast, Ooh, I like that. um, as being the leading innovator in automotive industry on how to create, uh, an industrial line with the, as few workers as possible. But if you look at the rate at, of hiring at these big giga factories, they're hiring a lot of people. So even though they have lowered the amount of people required to do much of the work, they still require people to do some things. They, they ran into issues where they were trying to automate things that the technology is just not there to automate it yet. And they were spending a lot of money on getting that done. And they've got to make sure that they don't spend too much money on, on developing the technology or the car becomes too expensive. So you have to limit it to readily available innovation. What can you innovate today to fix things? And that's an ongoing cycle, but we're, we're pushing that edge. We're pushing it out, which means we still require people to work there. And our population is shrinking, not growing. 
So if we're changing industries, this is important to recognize. Why would you, why is a growing population even something that we would want? Why is that necessary? A growing population gives us a growing workforce, which allows us to expand faster without having to wait for the new technology to automate. And that technology is always hard to come by. So it's important to recognize with a shrinking demographic, we have to really get more productive and we have to make sure that we don't break ourselves trying to be more productive. That's really easy to do. When they require you to work more or harder, you can really mess up the workforce. So, all right. So that's the, we're apolitical on this subject. I, I well, Here's, here's how political we are. I don't believe that we should have illegal immigration. There. I do believe that we should have immigration for the reasons that we're talking about now. It should be limited to the demand for low skill. We're, we're have, we have far fewer low skilled people than we used to because we're training them better. I believe in applying a general rule of thumb to immigration that is also applied pretty rigorously on highways. You measure, this is how a speed limit is supposed to be set. And there's lots of studies that have backed this up and, and this is the way it's done. You measure how fast people are going on a highway, whatever the speed limit is. Right. And if they're consistently breaking the speed limit and breaking the law, then the speed limit is too low. The Texas Department of Transportation likes to use the 80% mark. What the average of 80% of the traffic is, is the correct speed limit. So if we have millions of people trying to cross the border to come to the United States to get jobs because the jobs are there waiting for them then there's something wrong with our immigration law we should be allowing though we should be allowing more workers to come in to fill those jobs legally now just get this clear because if you don't do it legally it's all under the table black market stuff and it's not good for anybody it, it causes crime to go up so regulated, on-demand immigration that's not stealing jobs from America. Is that possible to do? Absolutely. It's been done here in the past, uh, and we have better technology to do it with now. But we're at an impasse in the polarity of politics to say either it's bad or it's good instead of how do we make this work on a normal business level. The last two times we ran into this economic condition that we're running in today, which is an industrial revolution, we benefited from it in the United States dramatically by dramatically increasing immigration. I'm going to say that again, by dramatically increasing immigration. Henry Ford was a hard pusher for allowing more immigrants to come into the United States to work in his factories. Uh, the same thing was true in the 19th century. If we do what the Japanese did and what the Chinese are doing, which is to say, we have a tremendous demand. We have a tremendous need for people to work, but we're not allowing people to come into the country. We will duplicate what has happened in the Japanese economy. The Japanese are wonderful people. They have a wonderful thing going. They have a tremendous work ethic. They have a uh, high education rate. They're, they, I mean, they're innovators, but they're not innovating at the speed that they need to, to continue to grow. The Nikkei stock average 20 and 30 years ago was always 10 times the Dow. It isn't anymore. It's about equal to the Dow, which means that over the last couple of decades, the stock values, the company values in Japan, relative to those in the United States, have dropped 
by about 90%. That's not to say that their company values went down, but they compared with growth in the United States, there's been about a 90% difference over the last couple of decades. Why? The principal reason is the Japanese simply do not, it's a cultural thing, do not allow foreign workers to come in and work. So they have been unable to grow their companies internally, which is why, by the way, Toyota makes a lot more cars in the United States than it does in Japan. The companies had to leave the country to make the cars, to, to make the things that are traditionally Japanese. I don't personally want to go into a stagnant economy like they have right now. It's, it's, they're, they have a lot of old people, and their economy is slowly sliding downhill. The Chinese, by the way, are headed that direction even faster. Uh, the Chinese economy, again, this is a whole different subject, is in a lot of trouble this year. All right. Their GDP quarter, their quarterly GDP, GDP is up 1.6%, uh, but ours is up 6.9%. Uh, and, that's yeah, that's the fourth quarter. We don't have data on first quarter for China yet. And their largest industrial city is Shanghai. And it is literally shut down. It's, it's also their finance capital. So finance and industry are capitalized right there in Shanghai. And it's shut down. It's not good. <laughs> it's really not good for their economy. And it's not good for ours either. And it's going to keep prices high here because, a lot, as I said, it's so much. Again, go, I remember when Walmart was proud of the fact that everything they sold was made in the USA. Yeah. And then they said, ever possible made in the USA. Well, they've dropped that very nicely. And if you go to Walmart and you find something that's made in the USA, it's exceptional today because most of it's made in China. We are dependent for low prices on things made in China. And a lot of things right now are not getting made that are made in China. So prices are going to continue to rise. That's And interest rates are going to continue to rise. Learn from the mistakes of others because you can't live long enough to make them all, make them yourself. We have a substantial quantity of people willing to work very, very hard south of the border, uh, south of the United States, who are very industrious. And I really think we need our laws modified to allow those people to, to who, are, who are quality people to come legally into the United States to fill these low-paid jobs. Um, it, it, maybe somebody can email us at either Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com if you want to disagree with that and give me some reasons i am very willing to listen and and this is the thing it isn't that we don't have people willing to work in the united states we have a lot of people willing to work but they already have jobs i mean we're now this is a employment stuff that that we're looking at the jobless claims fell to 166,000 people looking saying, hey, we lost our job. That's the lowest level since 1968. And our population is more than double what it was in 1968. So there, there's never been a time that we had this low new unemployment records when you adjust for our population, ever. And that's, that, that is my direct answer to, hey, we're taking jobs away from Americans. Well, not, not really. We're we all we're full employment. Uh, this is the amount of unemployment that is just people going from one job to another, and a very tiny percentage of people that are structurally unemployed that are still working. It's it, and I don't want to discount. It's not fun to be in that group, but this this is 
this is why we're saying if we don't have more immigration, then it's going to be a while for our automation. We're going to have a higher demand for the automation, and a lot of people are going to spend a lot of money on it to automate faster because the kind of growth that we're seeing, nobody wants it to stop. Nobody wants to stop being able to make more things for more people. And if, if there's any truth that's come out of the pandemic is that the United States does not like to be chained. It doesn't like to be limited on what we create, what we do, how we work, and how long we work, for whom, for how much. So the constraint now is on the number of people we have to hire. And if it's profitable to uh, hire someone with low skills and then train them, and we don't have them, then expect to see some efforts in Congress to increase immigration. That's probably mm. multiple years away, probably multiple years away because it's going to become a business issue in the next few years. It's going to become a major business issue in the next few years. I would prefer us to do it sooner rather than panic and do it when we have a crisis. Right. And, and it sounds like we're talking about, you know, if from a certain political point of view, it would sound like we're talking about diffusing American culture and diluting it with new immigrations and so on. But I would highly recommend that you go out and watch West Side Story or Gangs of New York. And this has been our method of existence since the beginning of the United States is to gather the best of the cultures that come to us and and some of the worst too, but mostly the best of the cultures that come to us. And that's been why we're called the melting pot. Now you need to do it with controls so that we're not importing a bunch of criminals, obviously. Uh, and if people are coming in without following the law, almost by definition, that's criminal. So we need better laws. We need, that's, this is all kind of pipe dream stuff though. Uh, neither of us think that Congress is going to get reasonable about this and say, yes, we just need to reform the law and um, have a good method of tracking the people when they come in. I've been accused of being a rhino on, in, on the airwaves, uh, Republican in name only. That's not true. I'm basically a Reagan Republican. I'll tell you that. Ronald Reagan put together a wonderful immigration bill that never got passed. And we could just go back and open up that bill and take a look at it again and pass it today, I believe. And it would be a tremendous boon for the United States. Um, it's unfortunate that we've gone by, we've gone polarized and either completely pro or completely anti-immigration. And I think neither one of those are healthy positions. Well, I, I get the uh, excellent opportunity to say that I'm not a rhino or a dino. If you're going to be Democrat in name only, that would be a dino, right? Um, That's I'm neither, because I am not registered with either party, but I vote. I just don't vote in the primaries, which takes away some of my voice, but I don't believe that any party represents the totality of who I am. I mean, if, if you're a libertarian, you probably have some views on the social side of things about homosexuality and so on that are very different from people in the Republican Party. And uh, you might have differences of opinion on a lot of subjects, but most libertarians vote Republican. At, or and I don't want to vote Democrat either because man, they have some really stupid stuff on the on the economic side. They both got stupid stuff on the economic side. 
So I, I can't claim to be on I- any party. And we're out of time for this last two hours. And this has been uh, the personal wealth coach. If you wish to contact us, you're certainly welcome to do so. We do manage money for, we're, we're wealth managers is what we do for people of relatively high net worth. And you can contact us locally at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletters. You can uh, listen to radio programs. You can find our uh, podcasts anywhere where podcasts are found. Uh, And you can... uh, Email us directly or contact us through the contact form. Our email addresses are jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Thanks for listening to The Personal Wealth Coach.